Oh, hi then. This is M.P. Fitzgerald, author of A Happy Bureaucracy, and I'm pretending to play the jazz piano. <laughs> no one is holding a gun to my head to say this, but they are withholding the antidote. Funding for this podcast comes from ebook and paperback sales of A Happy Bureaucracy, the, um, the book. Send a warning to do straight-laced and prudish books on your bookcase by adding paperback copies of A Happy Bureaucracy, Fear and Loathing in the Wasteland, and post-apocalyptic pirates. Just head over to my website, mpfitzgerald.art. Once more, that's mpfitzgerald.art. Fear and Loathing in the Wasteland The Happy Bureaucracy Book 2 by M.P. Fitzgerald Narrated by Gary Bennett Author's Note Strewn between drug use, groin malice, and cursing on a level tantamount to sacrilege are even more gratuitous mentions of bureaucracy. These bureaucratic references may not be for the weak of heart, also, child endangerment. Did I mention child endangerment? Chapter 17 A sea of enforcers lay in front of Arthur and Ralph. Many were shoulder to shoulder, and line after line of men and women stood in rows, facing the north, facing the approachers. The tax army was sandwiched between newly parked vans on each side, to cap off and wall off the ends. A few vans were scattered in front to prevent, or at least slow, any attempts of their approaches to mow them down with their vehicles. The first row wore ear protection and had settled on crouching on one knee, rifles out and aimed forward. The second row stood behind the others and settled their own rifles on the shoulders of the first row to steady them. Arthur had immediately doubted his plan the moment he had ordered it. Arthur and Ralph were not soldiers, they would likely be no help, could actually be detrimental even. Yet he could not sit idly by when so many people had to be protected. He was ready to die for his cause just the day before while on the way to Slaver City, and that had not changed. Oh, he didn't want to die for his cause, to be frank. He would much rather live, but dying for the sake of others was something he was prepared to do. That did not mean that he wasn't about to piss himself out of fear, or that he didn't think that what he was doing was dumb as hell. The two had opted to stay behind the last line. They were not noticed. It took Arthur a minute to realize that Ralph was looking over the heads of the enforcers. Do you see your cousin? Arthur asked. Ralph simply shook his head with sunken shoulders. Wasn't really expecting to, he admitted. My cousin is a coward. Chatter was light around them. Most of the enforcers were hyper-focused. This had the effect of making both Ralph and Arthur seem louder than they were, and made Arthur extra self-conscious about his words. He thought about what Ralph had just said, and edited what he wanted to say out loud in his head, trying to find the best way to say what he felt near a group of people that were professional bodyguards and soldiers. He sighed, then realized that it was no use. What could be said now could be the last that was said to each other. Why edit it down? Your cousin did the things that he did because he loves you. 
Arthur said finally. He just wanted to protect you. That's all he cared about. But maybe now he knows that there is nothing he can do. Maybe now he knows that he can't protect you anymore. This was met with a snide snicker from a man ahead of him, but no more. Ralph looked over at Arthur. Thanks, was all that he said. He did not need to say any more. Out in the distance, they could see squat but wide trucks. They were traveling in rows, spread wide, ignoring the road. Their vehicles had to be sturdy to handle the United Wastes off-road like that. Ralph fished in his back pocket and pulled out a wad of two-dollar bills. What do you say, Arthur? One last round? Ralph was referring to their bet. When they were cubicle mates, Ralph would bet ten dollars each time Arthur went out into the United Wastes for an audit and would bet against Arthur's survival. Arthur offered Ralph a wan smile. Deal, he said, fearing that it would be his last words. The cloud of dust and exhaust behind their approachers lightened and began to settle. Had they stopped moving? The enforcers remained alert and tense. A few of them lay belly down on top of some of the vans and pairs, a sniper and a spotter, holding binoculars and scopes up to their faces. All have stopped except for one, a spotter announced. The loudspeaker sputtered to life then, and the crackle of feedback thundered across the dry, windy air. A few enforcers jumped to the sudden noise, Arthur included. Hold your fire. Repeat, hold your fire. This didn't make any sense. Arthur had to see. He looked at Ralph. Ready to do something stupid? He asked. Aren't we all ready? Ralph retorted. Arthur grabbed Ralph's shoulders from behind and started pushing him forward. What are you doing? Ralph said with a scintilla of panic rolling off of his tongue. He resisted, but very little. Arthur ignored him. Supervisor coming through, Arthur yelled as he aimed the two of them forward through the rows of enforcers. Coming through, supervisor. Arthur stopped at the second row, now having a clear view ahead of him. Ralph looked like he needed to scream. The enforcers beside them, now pushed to the side, looked as annoyed as Ralph looked scared. The trucks, each a deep green, glistened under the sun. Arthur pulled the binoculars out. The detail that he saw behind his lenses were not much better, but he was able to spot the truck that was moving toward them. It was a green Humvee with a flatbed. The hood of the truck had a single white painted star on the front, and an American flag fluttered in the back. The U.S. Army. They would have the currency, the resources to match the IRS. But it couldn't be. The U.S. military could not possibly be the colonel's main client. It added up, but it did not make any sense. Had the IRS, the last federal agency on the planet, finally made contact with another survivor of the former United States government? No. No, that was impossible. It had to be raiders. The Humvees had to be scavenged. The military, just like everyone else, was bombed out of existence during the war. Prepare for exchange, the loudspeaker commanded before repeating. The enforcers shuffled in place. Arthur was glad to know that he wasn't the only one who didn't know what that meant. It's... it's the army, Arthur said to Ralph, not sure if he believed what he was saying. He pulled the binoculars up once more and gazed through them. The single Humvee was closer now. 
he could actually make out the details of figures. Two men sat up front, wearing green fatigues and solemn faces. The truck bed in the back looked empty, except for a single head that looked out to the side, a head with a grotesque waddle. Arthur watched the truck with his binoculars until it too came to a stop thirty yards away, close enough to make them nervous, yet far enough that when the men left their vehicle, pulled the colonel from the truck, and started walking toward them, it seemed to take forever. The driver, a skinny young man with a crew cut, walked behind the colonel, gun out but pointed down. The colonel walked forward slowly, his hands and feet in chains. His hateful stare had locked in on Arthur immediately, and once there, it never wavered. Beside the colonel was an older man that looked like he had been the product of a linebacker who had mated with a Viking. He towered over the others, with a face like baked Play-Doh. White hair had been shaven down into a crew cut, and made for an awkward backdrop to cauliflower ears. His uniform was neatly pressed, collared and decorated. He waved to the agents, actually waved in a friendly manner, with massive rings on each finger. Then he smiled. Holy shit, the man with cauliflower ears said with smiling eyes as he approached. The IRS turned into this man's army. Who would have thought? The man approached Arthur and Ralph, supposedly because they were the only two wearing ties. He offered his hand to shake, and Arthur suddenly found his own hand engulfed by the man's giant paws. The shake was firm but friendly. General Franklin Oswald, Army. But please, call me Franklin, he exclaimed with a wink as he shook his hand enthusiastically. Um, uh, Arthur McDowell, Internal Revenue Services. This is amazing, gentlemen, the man said, his glee suddenly spreading from one enforcer to the others like a disease. The IRS, we almost didn't believe him, he said, pointing at the colonel, who remained silent but focused his terrible gaze at Arthur still. We thought we were the only part of the government left. Us too, Ralph exclaimed, mirroring Franklin's joyous demeanor. Incredible, Franklin said. We put the colonel over there in custody the minute we found out you fellows were trying to collect back taxes. We respect the workings of government. He's in your guys' jurisdiction. Of course, the boys just had to see you all for themselves. He was all smiles. The rows of enforcers relaxed bit by bit, and the collective was almost celebratory. Franklin waved the other man to him and said, Hand him over, Lieutenant, with the same practiced disposition of a mall Santa giving out gifts. The lieutenant nudged the colonel forward. Take him as a show of faith, Franklin said. We'd love to share camp with you tonight and celebrate once we get word from your higher-ups. Can you believe it? Franklin began to chuckle, his face rosy. Together we can piece this broken country back together. He raised his hands upward at this, praising the sky. The lieutenant handed the colonel over to a couple of enforcers beside Arthur, then stood at attention beside Franklin. Franklin smiled wide. We'll wait back with our boys for the official invitation he said, as he took a few casual steps back. The colonel spat in Franklin's direction. Traitor, he said under his breath. Franklin responded with a smile and a wave. The enforcers did not need to force the colonel forward. 
he complied easily enough. Arthur did not wait for Ralph, who seemed content to take part in the group's sudden celebratory mood. He followed the enforcers to where they were taking the colonel. Arthur had questions, questions he feared the answers to. The colonel noticed immediately that Arthur was just behind them. Come to gloat, son, he said with no humor. Why did your men give up? Arthur said, ignoring the question as they walked. I told them to the minute they saw our client on the horizon, the colonel said as they walked past the rows of enforcers. Told them that they'd sort this all out and free him with our products. The colonel spat again before Arthur was fully caught up. Fucking backstabbers. But I guess y'all have been in bed together since before the war. They passed the last row of enforcers, seeing the colonel fall so far from his usual terrifying pomp and elegant cruelty should have been the highlight of his day. They had freed the slaves, shut down Slaver City with little casualties. Hell, they just made contact with whatever was left of the U.S. Army. You shouldn't trust him, the colonel said as they moved forward. One of the enforcers escorting him laughed mockingly at this. I don't, Arthur said, and he could feel the colonel's puzzlement without looking at him. What's that, boy? You finally listening to me? He watched as the tyrant moved with labored steps. No, Arthur said as he stopped in his tracks. Because they buy slaves. About the Author M.P. Fitzgerald is an author and humorist dedicated to injecting the feverish gonzo style into fiction. You can get Memos from the Wasteland, which is the official prequel to this book, free. It contains hilariously bleak office drama, Robbie's diary, and Arthur's last letter from his father. To get your copy, just head over to his website at mpfitzgerald.art. You'll also get free updates on future audiobooks and more. We hope you have enjoyed A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald, narrated by Gary Bennett. Text copyright 2019 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Production copyright 2021 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Music by Dustmice. Available on all streaming services and dustmice.bandcamp.com.